Welcome to Rome Cuny Bible Church, where we desire to become a worshiping community of grace and truth by sharing the love of Christ locally and globally. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 today. We're going to be just focusing on a couple of verses, Ephesians 2. I got to let you know that for first service, I had intentions of going from 8, verses 8 to 10, but I only got to 9. So... We touched a little bit on verse 10. And so we'll spend that. Well, just means I have a message ready to give on verse 10. Um, so we'll be there. Um, this week, it's been nice to have that. It's cold and crisp, but it was clear. And I don't, I don't know. I should ask if you who've been born and raised in this area, but do you ever get tired of like driving and seeing Mount Baker when it's clear and especially with all the snow? Or is that still something that grabs your attention? It does, okay. Because, like, we were driving, and Ada was in the car, and she's like, Dad! And I was driving, so of course, that scared me at first. Like, what? What happened? She's like, look it! And so, like, of course, you see it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a nice view right there. And it just draws you close and just say, thank you, Lord, for that. Um, and so I, it's one of those things that I pray that I don't ever get just tired of seeing that scenery. Um, but the same thing, like, kind of like with grace. So we're going to talk about God's grace. And as a Christian, I hope you don't get tired or numb about God's grace, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and you know this and you talk about it, you know these passages by heart, verses eight through nine. Uh, I pray and hope that this there just be that awe again, that it's almost like, hey, look, and it grabs your attention and you'd be like, yeah, that's good. So will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to uh, come here. And we, especially as Paul points us to where we once were, to what you've done. Lord, the great work of your grace, that's a free gift. Uh, help us, Lord, not to take it for granted. God, thank you that you forgive us when we do. Thank you that you're patient with us as we grow in understanding of what you've done. God, thank you for the work that you're doing in the lives of the believers here. God, thank you that you are steadfast and that you keep going. Thank you, God. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, really, the whole chapter of Ephesians could be like the summary of the book of Ephesians. He talks about what Christ did. He gives the gospel where we once were. We're sinners in need of his grace. He says this is what God gives. He gives grace. We're not saved by our own works. Nothing we could do. We could save ourselves. But it's all what God has done on our behalf. And then the second part of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, he talks about what that gospel work does, how we're reconciled with God into this new people group, and how that brings us together. It's the gospel being lived out amongst us. And really, that's the whole book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the gospel on display, what it is. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, how do we live it out? That's the idea there. And some of you may be like, okay, you get this. There's so much practical aspects in the book of Ephesians. And you're like, well, I don't see it yet. Well, it's in this. It's gospel living. It's very practical, but he gets even more specific. Uh, we talk about relationships and how does the gospel impact relationships? Husbands and wives, what does that look like? Uh, child and parent, what does that look like? Employer, employee, what does that look like? Uh, what does the gospel look like when we face trials in this life? He talks about that. How the gospel impacts us even in the spiritual life and the things that we can't see. That there's principalities and of darkness, that there's this war raging on and the gospel matters. And so, Christian, listen, 
Sometimes we like to go to the practical right away. Like, well, how do I live right now? How do I, you know, work in what needs to happen in my relationships if I have problems? Or what do I do if I have this conflict or trial? And a lot of times we want those quick fixes or how-tos. But Paul starts with what really matters is the gospel. Start there. Because if the gospel penetrates you and changes you, then it's going to impact every avenue of your life. That's what matters. That's why we're spending time there. And that's why Paul spends a lot of time there. So we see this in the book of Ephesians. And we get to kind of unravel that through this process. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. um, I'll just kind of give a summary because we spent some time this past few weeks going through there. And we're going to spend more time just because there's a lot here. But he gives kind of four four parts to um, this part. Uh, First, our condition outside of Jesus. Verses 1 through 3. He paints the picture. He lets everyone know that anyone outside of Christ, this is what our condition is. He says this, And we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition. He's saying, here it is. It's a pretty hopeless and helpless situation. All of mankind, we're all in this together. This is our predicament outside of Christ. That's it. And then he goes and says, but this is what God has done. Verses 4 through 7, it's what God does. He saves. But God, those two words that probably should grab our attention to say, look at how desperate of a situation we are. But God intervenes. The enemy is closing in. We're dead. But God saves the day. Like that's the picture here. But God. And what does it say about God? He's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us in verse 4. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what God has done. The third part of this section is, how does God do this? Verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, which speaks of, what do we do now that we're saved? It says, You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A very familiar passage probably for many of you. We talk about, well, we know that we're saved by what? By grace, not of our own works. But what does that mean? In the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the word grace is used 150 times. A lot of times. It's speaking of ultimately of God's action. One scholar named Carl Truman, in his book, Grace Alone, he defines it this way. Grace is action on God's part. 
It's motivated by love and shaped by holiness, which takes account of the seriousness of sin, yet brings sinners back into communion with Him. So it's God's act of love and what He does in bringing sinners to be in communion with Him. He goes on to say, The grace of God here is not simply the fact that God set forth His own Son to be His sacrifice. That in itself is amazing enough, yet it goes on. The incarnate Son even now continues to intercede for us on the basis of His sacrifice and does so in a manner that takes full account of His human nature and of His incarnate life. What he's saying is, God's grace, which is His act of love, His pursuing after, His bringing sinners into communion with uh, Him, isn't just Christ died as the ultimate sacrifice. That in itself, that's great. But His grace is ongoing where He intercedes for us on our behalf. That's continuing. That's the picture of God's grace. It's not just one and done. It's ongoing in what He does with us. Grace is not giving wholesome advice or a helping hand. It's God raising someone from the dead, first Christ and then those who are in Christ. That's the free gift that God gives. As the Bible talks about grace, there's actually like two aspects of it. First is like common grace. That would be God's gifts to all of humanity. That's like air that we breathe. That's a gift of God. Uh, rain, sun, those are aspects of God's gift upon humanity. Providing and provision, aspects of God's grace. But here in Ephesians 2, chapter 8, he's talking about special grace. That is... God's unmerited favor towards us, which brings sinners into communion with Him. Undeserved, unmerited favor that He has towards you and I, so that we would know Him and to abide in Him. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 speaks of this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Or another passage you're very familiar with is Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says, For the wage of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That free gift is another phrase for grace. It's from God, undeserved, unmerited. It's because of what He's done. There are certain aspects of life that we expect something in return. When I was a child, uh, my parents had chores and things that were asked of me and expected of me. But I knew if I went over and beyond, uh, they would sometimes give me other things. Like, oh, if I went in over and beyond, maybe it was like a special toy or maybe it was like, oh, let's go get ice cream. But I knew like there were certain things like if I did this, there would be some kind of transaction later on. And so obviously my motivation wasn't just to please my parents. It was because I'm going to get something out of this. And so that's a, a, sometimes the danger of our transaction with God is that we think like, well, okay, I get it. There's his grace that he gives us, but I want more from him so I'm going to do this and if I don't then there's going to be consequences and, and we have this transactional aspect when it comes to God's favor that's not grace grace is solely what Christ did on our behalf we have expectations when you work and you're working for an employer or a business uh, that you put in the time you work for them what is expected in return compensation or maybe it's a birthday, and usually around birthday times, there's usually gifts given. Now, certain times, or I don't know what the age number is in our lives where we stop having birthdays. I don't know what that matters, but which Alice had a birthday. Happy belated birthday, Alice. Um, but 
Usually there's some kind of expectation during that time of, like, it's a birthday. Gifts are given. There's nothing that should be expected that God gives us. In fact, what, what do we deserve? Well, Ephesians 1-3, through 3, don't forget. He says, here's your state outside of Christ. Well, what we deserve, he says, children of wrath, meaning we are inherited of God's wrath because of our rebellion of sin. But God gives grace instead. His unmerited favor. See, the Christian life begins with grace, and it ends with grace, and everything in between is dependent on God's grace. An apology to sin is not enough. There has to be some kind of payment for the wrong that was done, the consequences of. We're called to repent from sin, which means to turn from. That's us not only saying sorry, but showing like we've wronged God, we want to change direction. But that's not what saves us. What saves us is God's grace, what's found in Christ, what Christ did. See, there had to be judgment and justice for sin. And the only way for that to be paid would be by God and what He did. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who took on your sin and my sin, absorbed the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin, took our place. That's the aspect of grace that He said, I will take care of it. He didn't sweep it under the rug. No, it was paid for in full. And His grace is sufficient. The prophet Isaiah understood this about, he was looking towards the Messiah coming. But how does he describe the Messiah? Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. So right there, there's that bearing of or taking on our sin. He goes on to say, but we, but he was pierced for our, what? That's like another way of sin, our rebellion, what we've done against God. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, using that word transgressions, iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There is payment made for your sin and my sin. Justice has been served, but not in the way that we think of. But Christ said, I will take care of it. He goes on. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So grace isn't an aspect of God just saying, okay, here's a free gift of salvation. It's free gift of salvation that was paid for, purchased by Jesus Christ's life through his death, through his resurrection. Are you numb to grace? Or should you be in awe of God's grace? To be honest, there's times that, you know, we live this Christian life where we're like, yeah, I get it. We're saved by God's grace. I can't do anything. But have you stopped and been wowed by God's grace recently? Have you just stopped and said, man, look at who I once was and look what Jesus has done for me. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And yet he does that for us. God's grace is not one and done, but it's continuous. Meaning, yes, the work that Jesus did on the cross is sufficient. It's done. He said, it is finished on the cross. But the grace that he gives us is this outpouring of that never ends. Um, can you imagine if God said, okay, each and every one of us gets a certain amount of grace in our life. He's like, you get this much, whatever that number is. And if you use it all up, too bad, so sad, that's on you. 
Oh, we'd be in a world of trouble, wouldn't we? Can you imagine? You're like, man, I really messed up today, but good thing I got a little bit extra for the next day. And then it goes little by little. And you'd be biting your nails. You're like, this is not good. That's why Paul uses words to describe the vastness of God's grace. He says he lavishes upon us like as a wealthy person is spoiling us. Uh, Measurable riches, meaning can't count it. A bank account keeps adding zeros to the end of it because it's just ongoing. It's a well that never runs dry. It's a mine that you could go and find riches and never obtain it all. Like that's the picture of God's grace. It's ever in, never ending. That's why Paul writes in the Romans like, hey, do we sin so that grace can abound and abound and abound more and more? He says, no, absolutely not. We desire to please God because of the grace that we received. But you can never out sin God's grace. That's the picture because it's unending. But that's why Paul's argument is like, as a result of recipients of God's grace, then you desire to sin less, to please him more, because of the change that took place. Every aspect of our Christian life is one of grace. That's even why Paul, when he approached God to remove the thorn from his side, the flesh, he approached God three times, asked for it to remove. How did God respond to him? He didn't say like, ah, you know, just keep going. You're good. He says, no, my grace is sufficient. That was the answer. So God gives us a sustaining grace that's unending that matters continuously in our life. It's grace alone that saves us. Every aspect of the Christian life, disciplines that we're called to follow, is a grace given to us. For example, we have God's Word. Did you know this is a picture of His grace that He's given us to know Him? God has spoken. It's grace that the Holy Spirit points God's Word to our lives to understand. It's grace that we are able to even know Him and to know His heart. That's a picture of a gift from God to know Him that draws us close to Him. Uh, prayer is an aspect of God's grace. That we get to talk with God. And yes, we use prayer and define prayer that way. But the psalmists, especially in the Old Testament, they understood asking of God and God responding was a picture of His grace. Psalm chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. God giving His ear... God allowing us to ask of Him, but God giving His attention to us and His time is extending His grace to us. That's the picture here. Or like the author of Hebrews, I love how he wrote this. It says this in Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's saying Jesus understands. He understands you. Each and every one of us, like he understands. And then he goes on to say this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Approaching God, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, to ask of him, knowing that he hears us, is a picture of his grace upon us. That's the picture here. We have grace to come to know God, grace to learn more about him, grace to be able to approach him and ask of him, grace to go another day. It's his gift. 
He's wealthy and lavishes upon us his gift. And that's why Paul says we're saved by grace. But then there's another aspect to the Christian life. He says, saved by grace through what? Faith. Now, what is faith? It's not just belief. I usually describe it as belief in action. The author of Hebrews also says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's even saying it's not just believing in those things, but conviction leads to action. Assurance of things to hope for means that you're putting your all in. That's the idea there. Heard the story about a man who was a tightrope walker, and he would tightrope across the Niagara Falls from the United States side to the Canadian side. His name was Charles Blondin. And in 1859, he had this remarkable cross that he would walk across and he would walk back and crowds on both sides drew near. And then one time he had a wheelbarrow and he was walking across and everyone's like, whoo, you know, look what he's doing. And so as the crowd's cheering, he said, how many of you think I could walk across with someone in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd cheered and said, yeah. And they were all excited because they want to see it. And then he asked the second question, all right, well, who's going to get in? And the crowd was silent. <laughs> Faith is saying, hey, I not only believe, but I'm going to do something about it. You exhibit that faith all the time. You had faith that the chair was going to hold you because you sat in the chair. You have faith as you drive in your vehicle that's a combustible engine, except if you have an electric car, and that's a whole other worry. But as you go forward, like you're like, it's not going to blow up on me because you drove your car. Uh, you have faith as you walk from one place to the other that you're going to get there. You have faith that while you sleep at night that you're going to like sleep and you're going to be okay while you sleep. Those are all aspects of belief in action. But the Christian believes not only in who Jesus is, but follows up in action. So what does grace and faith matter? Why did Paul use those phrases? Because, well, like grace, faith is a gift from God. Faith as a Christian is a belief in God and what he's done, and it's from God and by God. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 the gospel, the, the um, apostle John, he talks about this. He says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He's talking about the aspect of faith. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So just like grace, faith is a gift, but is a conduit to grace. Faith is a means on how grace is attained, is the instrument by which grace is received. A poor example would be this. If you have a cell phone, your cell phone probably runs on some kind of power, and you need to charge your cell phone. If power is grace, then the line to that, to your phone, to the wall, is faith. Like, that's the idea. It's a conduit. It's a recipient of that. Our faith that God has given us is a receiving of God's grace. It's belief in what he's done on our behalf with action following. Many Protestants would be, we understand that we're saved by grace through faith. And what does he write in the rest of it? Verses 8 and 9 says, And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not the church. It's not by good deeds. It's not by some man's authority. It's strictly by what God has done on our behalf through Christ Jesus. 
We need to remind ourselves how we're saved. It's not by anything we could do or can't do, but what God has solely done. As I mentioned earlier as a kid, and wanting to gain favor or to do that, the dangers that we could do that in our Christian life with God. I've shared with you in my, about my past and how my upbringing. I grew up in a Christian home and went to a Christian school. And so as I understood at a young age the Bible, I understood uh, stories in the Bible, and I could tell you what Jesus did, but what I didn't understand was grace. I had a very moralistic approach to things where I knew what was good and bad in that sense, but I constantly had this battle like, well, I need to do this so God would like me more, and if I don't do this, no wonder bad things happen. And I kind of kept on trying to make God happy and not, not mad at me, and so there's this constant back and forth, and that's so tiring. It really is. Until someone shared about God's grace, which I'm sure I probably heard that phrase and understood at one point, but the light bulb just at that moment went on that I realized I can't save myself, but God solely did it. That I can't try to make God like me even more, but that He's showed that love that He has for me, the greatest display by looking to the cross and what Jesus did on my behalf. That's freeing. And talk about the, the weight, the baggage going off my shoulders. Like, so it's not up to me? No. How good that is to feel like, I'm so glad that he did it. I'm just called to follow after him. So let me just, so we understand. Our obedience does not save us. Obedience stems by God's grace through faith. It's a product of not gaining for. Yeah, we're called to be obedient but it's not for salvation. It's because of salvation. Uh, generosity. I have talked to some people when you talk to them and as a pastor, you have those conversations like maybe if someone before someone's going to die, like, hey, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? And they'll say either a few things. One is, I think so. I'm a good person. And I've given a lot, whether it's time, resources, whatever the case may be. And I'm like, you know what? Generosity doesn't save you. We're called to be generous because we have a generous God, but it's not for salvation. It's a reflection of and a picture of. Remember, Paul's saying God's generous because what he's generous with? His grace. He pours upon his grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon you and I. And as we've received or been recipients of his, of his generosity, thus we want to be generous as well because it points to him. Good deeds. I've heard that so many times. And just like Jesus was asked, like, you know, being a good person, like, what does it mean to be good? Call me good teacher. But even the Bible talks about how what we think is good deeds are like filthy rags. They fall short to God's perfect standard. It doesn't save you. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul talks about we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He didn't put that before we're saved by grace through faith. He put it afterwards because he wanted us to understand that the work that flows from God's grace is good in pointing to him, but it has nothing to do with our salvation for us to gain salvation, I should say. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Then he goes on to say, I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteous. if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Talks about those good deeds. If we were to say, well, I'm obedient to the law. It says, you nullify God's grace. Why did Jesus die? Because we can't save ourselves. We're not saved by having knowledge of the Bible or being th- theologically astute. God's grace should put a fire in us to want to know more about Him and to share more about Him, but it doesn't save us. It's strictly by grace alone and what Christ has done. So why does this matter? Why does this matter for you and for me? I like how commentator Richard Koken, he writes this, to know that I am saved by grace liberates me from the pride of imagining I can save myself and the terror of realizing that I can't. It frees us. As I shared earlier, like that, where I felt like I had to, and it was liberating for me to know, like, man, I can't save myself. And on the flip side is, we are terrified if we know that, like, how am I saved? And if I constantly try to save myself and feeling like I have to continue going on and on and on, it's terrifying. But that's why God's gift, a free gift, is called grace, which he's done through Christ Jesus. So what can we boast in? It says, we can't boast in works. Because if you try, that means you try to save yourself and you're constantly going to have to continue doing works to save yourself and it doesn't matter. Then the gospel and what Christ did doesn't matter. But Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I do the world. Boast in what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. Yes, celebrate the fact when you are able to say, in Christ I was able to overcome certain temptations, or there's growth in my life, or realize that I'm no longer the same person, I'm a new creation in Christ, and there's growth that's taking place in my life. We need to celebrate those things and rejoice in the work that God is doing. But ultimately, at the end of it, who's the one doing the work? God. It's His free gift that He's given to us. In these verses, we get to see aspects of this. One, the motivation to save sinners is what? God's love. And then verse 10 talks about the purpose to save sinners is for the glory of God. Notice that it says, though we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. We are his workmanship. Created for what? Good works. The Greek for that word workmanship is actually pointing to creation And it's almost like Paul's drawing back to what took place in the garden. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 when God was creating through the different six days and at the end of six days before he rested, he looked at all his creation and he said what? It is very good. That was before the fall, before the curse, before the taintiness of sin. He says very good. And then the fall took place and the curse took place and sin entered the world. And now we see Ephesians 2 verse 10 this workmanship. It's almost like reverting back to what God is doing. Where Jesus makes all things new, that's what he's doing. He's pointing to that is very good. That the gospel work, what Jesus does in us and through us is very good. And it's ongoing. There's a term that's used in theology called sanctification. This is that daily being brought to be closer and closer to look like Christ or to be made into that image that he's working in us and through us. And it's ongoing. He's referring to that. You are his workmanship, pointing to Jesus for his glory, created for good works. Christian, listen. 
This is the gospel at work in you and through you. And know this, that he's not done with you. Philippians 1, 6 says this, and I know this, for he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's working in you and through you. He's not done with you. There's a great work of the gospel that we could share in, that we get to be part of, and we see that. God's grace, which he has poured out upon you, I pray and hope, and this is my prayer too, that we wouldn't be callous to it or numb to it, but we'd be in awe on it. And that would get our attention and say, thank you for the work that you've done. As we sang earlier, a song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it's a hymn by a man named Robert Robinson at the turn of the 19th century. But listen to the words again. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Saying, hey, when I think about your grace and your mercy, I can't help but sing loud songs of praise. (laughs) Talk about getting his attention. Contemplating, thinking about God's grace as wanting him to shout in praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from the danger, interposed his precious blood. This is the work that Christ has done. How his kindness yet pursues me, mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind me, my wandering heart, to thee. He'd rather say, chain me to you, God, in your goodness than me to be away from you because of your grace. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you've been there before. And he says this, here's my heart. Oh, take and see it. Seal it for thy courts above. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed in in blood-washed linen. I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thy angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. His grace is good. His grace is sufficient. His grace sustains us. We know that's not by anything we've done. It's his unmerited favor towards us sinners that brings him in communion with him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and the reminders that we all need to have. God, thank you that you're the one that has done the work, that we're saved by grace through faith, that you who called us for us to believe in you, to act upon that belief by following you, knowing that it's a free gift that you've given to us. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, or maybe they've been trying to gain favor from you in their own way, in their own strength, Lord, And they're tired. Lord, I pray for those right now that they would realize that they just need to call in the name of Jesus to rest in the work that he and he alone did through his life, death, and resurrection to believe that he came to save sinners by him giving himself up as a sacrifice. That Jesus, who is alive now, intercedes on our behalf, Lord, that they would turn and follow him now. God, thank you for the reminder for those who are in Christ today. You know, each and every one of us You know about our week. God, thank you that you've been patient with us. Thank you knowing that we could be refreshed in you. Just even picturing your grace, Lord, I pray that would help us out as we go forward 
and wanting to follow you. Lord, I pray for those conversations that we may have with other people. As we know this truth, we get to share that with other people. Help us to talk about you to this, this community, those you place in front of us, as we go to work or with our families. May we be in awe of the grace that you've given to us. And we would boast in Jesus. Be with us, Lord. Thank you for us to think about your grace and we get to proclaim how good you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please? Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information, please visit rcbcbellingham.com.